Hey guys, welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. And if you're new here to the show, or to Courier, we're all about telling amazing stories of modern business. Basically, showing you how to work better and live smarter. Make sure to check out our latest print edition, The Design Issue, which is all about how to make it work as a creative entrepreneur. Just head to couriermedia.co for more. We've also just launched a sister podcast called Courier Workshop. It's jam-packed with business advice. And this week, we dug into nailing your brand's tone of voice. You can just search for Courier Workshop on your podcast player to subscribe. And we have a bit of a sneak peek at the end of this show, too. Today on the show, we've got on Melanie Masserin. She's the founder of the newly launched alcohol-free drink brand, Gia. Way back in April, we predicted Gia was about to take off. And that was even before it launched. That's because lockdown drinking aside... People have been reducing their alcohol intake for years now, and low-to-no alcohol brands are booming. Melanie was previously the head of marketing and creative director at Dig In, the farm-to-table restaurant chain in the U.S., and she then led the offline and experiential strategy at Glossier. Well, Melanie and her team originally were supposed to launch Gia back in April, but things didn't exactly go to plan. Melanie will explain what caused all the starts and stops and where she hopes to take the brand. But first, I wanted to know where the idea for Gia came from in the first place. As she tells it, it began with a trip with friends to Milan. The trip to Milan was the aha moment. It's funny, I was talking to a friend, you know, yesterday because now I have like all these kind of business ideas and there are some that are just for years you think there's a product that you wish existed in the world and then you wake up one morning and you decide that you're going to do it. And I think that with Gia, it was really on this trip to Milan that I decided to take the leap. But I had been on and off, not drinking for a few years. I realized it didn't really work for me. It made me slow. It hurt my stomach. Apparently, it's not just me, but people decide they're okay with it. Whereas for me, it just really didn't work. And so... I was just not really drinking and always frustrated with the lack of options for people who wanted to be social, but didn't really have anything on the menu that wasn't overly sweet or soft drink. And in terms of flavors, was very inspired by the flavors of my childhood. I was born in France, in Lyon. I grew up near the Mediterranean every summer. And my grandfather's is Italian. So there's this kind of blend of appreciation for food, appreciation for hospitality, running around empty kitchens as a kid, and also just aperitivo culture, which I think was the biggest inspiration. I think there isn't a single night of each summer where there weren't 10 people in my house, you know, moving from drinks to dinner in a way that was very without consequence. You weren't thinking that there would be work tomorrow. You weren't thinking it was just kind of a natural progression of the night. And a lot of that, you know, came with lower alcohol content and just I think also it was a different time when we weren't always stuck to our phones and there wasn't this kind of overstimulation and so I wanted to bring a little bit of this carelessness to the way that we live today and so much of that obviously has changed. When I started GIA you know it was kind of peak 2018, 2019, when everybody was in the office a lot and all of these things. And obviously COVID has changed a lot of that for us. But I think a lot of the intention remains in terms of taking better care of ourselves and connecting better. Were you on the hunt at the time for a really good business idea? Because you're, you know, you're steeped in the background of quite a lot of like successful direct-to-consumer or consumer brands, basically Glossier and Dig In, right? Were you looking for the next big thing? 
I think I was really looking for the thing that would be my thing. So when I left Glossier, which was an incredible work experience and human experience, it's a tough act to follow to leave Glossier. And I had decided like the next thing needs to be the thing that I stay at for a long time and it just needed to feel right. And I really missed the food world. I think I didn't want to open a restaurant. I'm not a chef, but there was something about food and hospitality and hosting dinner parties is like my greatest skill. It's just the way that I live is all about sharing and it's often over a meal. And I wanted to somehow merge my professional life with my personal life in a way that felt like very vocational. I was waiting for the right thing to come up, but in the meantime, I was freelancing. So I had sort of relieved this pressure to look for the next big thing. And rather I was kind of finding the time and I was being thoughtful about what was coming. So you had the Eureka moment. What was the first step? The first step was coming back from this trip to Milan and it was doing a little bit of research. And I realized that in the UK, there were 120 new non-alcoholic brands that had come to market in a country where drinking is so ingrained in the culture that felt very surprising to me. But perhaps because it was so ingrained in the culture, there were all of these alternatives. And interestingly, they were sort of direct alcohol alternatives. So a gin alternative or really trying to be like the non-alcoholic version of a drink. And I thought that was quite interesting. Some of them had a track record of success, like Seedlip, for instance. And I thought, wow, there's something there. Yeah. I mean, Seedlip had tremendous success, right? I mean, you know, they got bought by Diageo. Yeah. On their third year or something like that. Uh, And they're in all the best bars. They're very well respected. They have really managed to create a brand and create trust And that's really admirable. And they really have garnered respect from the industry, which is very hard to do as a new category, I would say. And so I was, you know, really impressed with that. But I also felt like that was not what I wanted. I did not want to drink a gin alternative. I wanted to drink something that was dry and I wanted to drink something that was bitter. And I was very set on the idea of creating a drink that was bitter. I really believe it's the best base to prepare your palate before a meal. And it's also a a very versatile drink. And so I kind of had this idea of like, how do you have an Aperol that has no booze and no added sugar? Because the other thing with, I think an Aperol spritz is 19 grams of sugar. I mean, it's neon orange. It's very chemical, you know, but I wanted something that was as cool. I wanted something that was as fun. You know, there's a whole brand around the Aperol spritz and there's a whole moment. Like there's something about the spritz that is like very joyful. And so I wanted to create that. I didn't want to create a brand that was a lesser version of an alcohol brand. And so that was the first step, was finding the formulator, finding someone to help us develop this drink, to educate us a little bit. And so I started asking everyone I knew. And who was that? Who did you end up going with? So he prefers to remain private because he works with a lot of beverage brands, but it's someone who lives in New York and who walked into the meeting and said, I believe non-alcoholic aperitifs are the future of beverages. And so I knew I had to hire him. And we started working together and it took us 37 iterations in 55 weeks to create Gia. Did you have funding at that point? I did not have funding. Were you using your own savings? I was using my own savings. A few months later, I had someone join the team on a freelance basis and I was very much directly consulting and then making a Venmo payments to him <laughs> for the first few weeks until we figured everything out. And then we ended up raising a friends and family round later in 2019. How do you know that this isn't just going to be a passing fad, a trend, the low alcohol and no alcohol sector? I mean, all the stats are showing that it's rising in popularity. People are wanting it. But, you know, it's the same thing as like, how do you know CBD isn't a passing trend? You know, a year from now, people will just abandon it. 
Yeah, well, I can't talk about CBD. I think there's a lot that we have to learn about it. And perhaps no and low is a bit of a trend, but I feel and hope that better for you options, they're just more sustainable. And, you know, if we really define sustainable as like the ability to endure or the ability to last, like we want our bodies to last and we want experiences to last and we want memories to last. And I think with that in mind, and if you use this lens, it just makes a lot of sense to be drinking less. I also think while it might feel a little bit trendy to be talking about sober curiosity right now, it's a bit of a buzzword. There's a lasting trend in that people are just more mindful and mindfulness overall is omnipresent in a lot of the things that we do. And it can be spirituality, it can be food, it can be beverages. And I think now it's like shifting from the plate to the glass in a way that's interesting or more holistic. And so it can be that you just want to start drinking ghee at 10 p.m. because you had your miscal with your friends and then you want to kind of slowly cut yourself off from the night or that you want to have ghee on a Tuesday and then only have a couple of nights of alcohol. It's something that is becoming much less binary than before being sober and that I really see as lasting for a long time. I also feel so much better that I hope, you know, others will feel that way as well. And the design that you guys have is obviously really unique and cool and kind of like, I know you guys tapped up a pretty well-known design agency out in California for that, right? Yeah, we worked with Willow Perona and Associates for the design and it's been a really fun process. It was a really long process. We did so many iterations of it, but we really got in a place that I think made people smile during a time when it's, you know, hard to be so joyful and optimistic. And so we're very happy. And what about the launch? Because you guys launched right in the middle of a pandemic. Nobody could have predicted that. How did you, as the founder of the company, as the leader of the company, how did you navigate that? Did you have to postpone the launch a bit? Did it make you scared that, you know, in a time when people were drinking more alcohol in lockdown, maybe people wouldn't want a no alcohol drink? Yes, for sure. I think beyond that, we also had a lot of operational challenges so that we had to push the launch. We were supposed to launch with a friends and family launch that was in restaurants only on April 1st. And obviously all the restaurants in the world closed down two weeks before that. So that was very challenging. And it was also hard to think about how to lead during this time. Of course, you know, I'm a first time founder, but generally even I realized as I called a few people for advice, like no one had the answer. The uncertainty at this moment in time was just too big. And then we started having a lot of operational challenges. Our bottles got stuck in Italy. Our factory started making hand sanitizer so we couldn't produce. Some of our extracts got stuck, you know, in the different places where they were coming from. We couldn't develop our second formula because a specific spice that we had been sourcing for a long time came from Wuhan. I mean, all of these things that you actually cannot invent. And so, you know, when that happens, you can't be reacting to all these things that are out of your control. So what we said is we have this time and we want to be very intentional about the way that we launch. Do we feel like this is what we want to do with our lives. And do we feel like this product is needed out in the world? And meanwhile, we were seeing like alcohol sell like spike because people were drinking themselves into oblivion, trying to pass time at home. A lot of people were losing their jobs. We thought, yes, more than ever, you know, we need to be able to bring some joy and some comfort and, you know, some disco to people in their homes without booze or without, you know, added sugar. So we kept working and, you know, it was one hurdle after the other and launch was complicated because revised launch date was actually on Blackout Tuesday during Black Lives Matter. And so when that all started happening, it was a moment of pause and we said, you know, obviously this is so much bigger than us and it's a meaningful conversation that needs to happen. And we did another reset, really thinking, 
you know, we're in the middle of a historical movement. We're very lucky that we haven't launched yet. We have the opportunity to build the right foundations for our business, learn from the people that have come before us. So we shifted the date again to a bit later, but it was hard. You know, a lot of press was only covering Black-owned businesses and rightly so. It was about time. And so we just said, you know what, it's okay. It will be not the splashy launch that everyone had dreamed of. We're trying to build a forever brand and it will be a slow ramp up. And if one by one we can make a difference with customers this summer, like that's what we want to do. So we couldn't get into our warehouse because of COVID. And I said, we're not launching with a warehouse that we haven't been able to train in person. I want to be there. So we started making all the boxes for ourselves, self-distributing. I wrote 1,200 thank you notes, handwritten the first week, send them all to people. And I think we built a first cohort of customers that feels really strongly about the brand. And our repeat rate has been enormous thanks to that. Whatever we can control, like we want to be making a difference. And then the pandemic hopefully goes away very soon. Yeah, hopefully. Touch wood. Has it changed your actual business model, though, the way that you want to sell the bottles? Because you mentioned, you know, you wanted to launch in collaboration with some restaurants, but is it now purely D2C? For sure, yes. We are digital first. So not purely D2C in that we've also been trying to support the restaurant community. You know, no one is doing well right now. I mean, no one in general, but the hospitality industry obviously is suffering more than most. So we've, we're allowing them to sell Gia by the bottle. So people can go on our stockings page and they can look at their nearby restaurants. And, you know, if the restaurant sells groceries or other things and the business model that a lot of people have pivoted to, they'll also be able to buy a bottle of Gia and we're selling it to restaurants wholesale, which is a lower price than we would use usually sell for on-premise and we are extending you know the same payment terms that like alcohol brands are even though we're a very small business and we are you know giving them free product to help them reopen we're really trying to build these relationships and support them but you know I'm not a digital person I'm a very offline person and so I dream of the days when we can just go and sit at a bar and order a guia so we're just eagerly, you know, waiting for that to happen. And we've had to learn, we've had to rush, you know, the build of our site. I have to like learn about Google ads now and I have no idea, you know, how those work. So we're taking it day by day. How big is your team right now? Three people, including myself. Tiny. It's very tiny. We have a lot of freelancers that are helping us that are great. And honestly, everyone feels like they've given hundred percent of their energy to the team. So I couldn't be more grateful for them. Did you have enough runway to sustain the delays that you had to go through? We're spending very little and thankfully we've had a good launch. We haven't had to raise more money, but we probably will very soon. You thinking you might go down the VC route? Not for this year. (laughs) She says very carefully. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of interest because it's a growing category, but it's also such an uncertain time to be raising capital. And I don't want to just be raising a bunch of capital. I want to build a very healthy business. I feel so lucky that we didn't have the financial pressure of a VC and having to provide VC returns during the first few months of our launch. We called all of our investors when the pandemic hit for advice and I was able to very transparently tell them, like, these are all of the issues that we're running into and these are all of the risks of the business. What should I do? And I feel like that would have been a very different approach, you know, if I had a VC to report to that was expecting, you know, 20 times return in X number of years. How do you guys intend to stand out from the crowd of your competitors? Because it's not super, super crowded. The very specific sector you're in, like the kind of millennial focused kind of low to no alcohol beverages. But you have, you know, guys like House and Kin and other kind of like cool, buzzy, Instagram friendly brands. Do you see them as 
competition or are you kind of going down a different route? Yeah, I think actually quite different. Because we're non-alcoholic doesn't make us the same. And I think all of these brands are standing out because they have built a lot of personality. House has 16% alcohol and it's great base and it's based in Sonoma County. And, you know, Helena and Woody are incredible. And then, you know, Kin is a lot more functional and it tastes very different. And we're a Mediterranean aperitivo. It's very bitter. There's, it doesn't taste like anything else that's really on the market right now. And so I really see our competition or I hope our competition is Campari or Aperol. It's like if you're looking for a bitter, you know, drink to spritz or to enjoy before dinner and you are, you know, wanting to maybe have something that is either no alcohol or low ABV, like Gia is for you. But I think that's kind of how the decision tree happens. Fingers crossed. You're doing something pretty cool that a lot of a lot of other brands are starting to experiment in, which is kind of an old school way of communicating text messaging. So you have text Gia, basically, you know, and what is that for? And who would use that? And why is it so effective? Or is it just like a fun thing to do? It sort of started as a fun thing to do, mainly because we're not digital experts. And so we wanted to try different things. And that was a very, you know, cheap way of communicating. I think we pay $20 per month to have a text message line. It's actually a personal number. It's not even a company number because we wanted it to have a full, you know, set of digits. Is that hooked up to your phone? Yeah, it's, it's hooked <laughs> up to, it is. It's hooked up to two team members' phone. And so we cover with time zones, but I answer a number of text messages for sure. So we set up 707 Text Guia and mainly to try, we wanted people to be able to get super speedy customer service. We wanted people to be able to ask how Guia tastes or how to make it. We also wanted to help them set the mood at home. So if you order Guia, you open the box, you're feeling a certain way, text us, we'll send you a playlist. We spend an inordinate amount of time, I would say unreasonable amount of time on our playlists actually. <laughs> and so it's just a way of connecting when you're indoors. And so far, you know, it's been working. I think we've exchanged like 1,800 text messages since we launched six weeks ago. So it's just amazing. That's a lot of time, though, taken up by your team of three. Yes, definitely. <laughs> what about some of the big lessons you've learned? I mean, I know you've gone through some hurdles in the launch. You know, you've delayed it twice. You launch in the middle of a pandemic. What have you learned during this period? So much, but I still don't think like we have all of the insights yet. We're so new, you know, we're six weeks old. I think generally we had an intuition that, you know, customer service was not like a cost center, that it was a revenue center, that it was like really a key tenant. It's part of marketing. It's it's like a key tenant of the business. And I think for us, we've really invested in that, as you mentioned, with the text messaging, with the emails, with the just... If anything happens to your order, you know, there's no problem. If you don't like it, no problem. I think that's really made a difference for people in a time when they need to feel supported and aligned with even the brands that they purchase from as people's purchasing powers has also decreased. We're just incredibly thankful to people who are buying non-alcoholic aperitif online. Like it's a bit far-fetched if you think about it, you know? And so everyone who's trusted us since launch and had a question or anything, we're really investing the time to make them feel special because they really are. Have you smoothed out your supply chain issues? Yes, thankfully. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was a bit tough there. I mean, you have a spice coming from Wuhan. You have bottles in Italy. You have, you know. <laughs> the spice from Wuhan was for another product that is going to come out next year. And we have actually removed it from the formula. But, you know, in terms of this specific one, everything was more expensive because it was harder to make. And generally, there was a lot of uncertainty around when we would be able to make the next batch of our product because of hand sanitizer. And it seems like there's plenty of hand sanitizer in the United States now, so we can make some Gia again. So we're good and we feel good. 
What about social media marketing? Do you guys dump a lot of money into Instagram ads and, and targeted social ads? We have just been testing right now. We're building our audience. So we have not spent a lot of money. I don't personally believe that it's a good way of introducing your brand to people. So we've invested in marketing that is a lot more word of mouth focused. We're rolling out an ambassador program. We are, you know, texting and chatting with customers. And I think it's obviously always a, a blend of all of these things. And we are prospecting and we are, you know, retargeting, but it's very small right now. Do you wish you would have done anything differently? Being so uneducated about digital marketing, I really wish that I had learned a little bit more before about it, but that just comes from my experience. You know, I used to work at Dig In in hospitality and then I worked in retail at Glossier and having to pivot like your first company's business to be entirely digital, that was really scary. And I wish that I had been able to learn and build a bit more of that skill set before launch. Thankfully, we had done a lot of community building offline while we could. So I think that that definitely helped a lot. We had involved hundreds of people in our recipe development. And so we had a number of people that were very much cheering for us when we launched. And that was very special. And in terms of what's next, you mentioned you're working on a new product as well right now. I think we will be building some products around the original flavor of Gia, and we are also exploring the potential of new flavors, but nothing confirmed right now. There will definitely be a new product launch next year, though, that we're quite excited about. Melanie Masser in there from Gia. And as mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a brand new podcast out called Workshop. It's all about useful business advice and insight to help you grow your own brand. This week's episode was all about nailing your brand's tone of voice. Here's a bit of what you might have missed. Your business's tone of voice is essentially its personality, how it sounds to people across all of your comms and messaging. It determines how you speak to customers online, the messaging on your packaging or in your product's UX, and all your captions on social media. A distinctive tone of voice that's deployed consistently helps reinforce all other aspects of your brand, and it helps you build an emotional connection with your customers. I spoke to two communications managers one a massive company and the other a small startup that recently launched on Kickstarter. They both emphasized that a successful brand voice is actually one that sounds human. It's always really important when you're first kind of set out to build that brand voice that you can think about it as a human. And I think what companies can get wrong when they're building a brand voice for the very first time is thinking that it's a non-human voice. You know, you see a nice brand once, are you going to remember it tomorrow? No. But if you think about, you know, your own personal life, do you remember that really compelling conversation you've had? Yes. Do you then tell that story to a friend? Yes, probably. So I think, you know, words and conversations just for us as humans are so, so important. And for a brand to... I guess think like a human, you know, it's run by humans, so why shouldn't it think like humans and behave like humans? You can search for Courier Workshop on your favorite podcast player to subscribe or just head to our website, couriermedia.co. And that's it for this week. As always, if you've got any questions or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly is back again next week.